0: Now, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Uh, joining me on the phone, it is five-time Grammy Award-winning singer B.J. Thomas. And he has uh, recently done a concert called Rock for Relief that also had Alice Cooper, Peter Frampton, Don Felder, George Thorogood, and many others. And of course, uh, it was for the Feeding America charity, which I, of course, will support and or do support, I should say, and uh, joining me on the phone is the one and only Alan Niven. Bonjour, monsieur. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? Je suis bien. I am bien. Um, when I said to you I was going to be interviewing B.J. Thomas, what did you think of that? Because he, it, it is for Feeding America, and I just think it's important to give that a voice.
1: Uh, I, had, I had a schizophrenic reaction. Part of me went in logical order. B.J. Thomas, raindrops keep falling on my head. Catherine Ross on a bicycle. That was part of my thinking. The other part of my thinking is great energy is putting into something utterly worthwhile. And it's really cool that he's pulling those people together to uh, raise money. I I think that's a, a wonderful thing to do.
0: Yeah, it, it really is. And, of course... You know, recently, Charlie Daniels passed away. He is, whatever you want to call him, the grandfather of country music, one of the most inspirational, uh, you know, a, a grand uh, in, you know, musician. I mean, whatever tag you want to put on him. And BJ is friends with him or had been friends with him. And so we we, we remember Charlie. Do you, as a as a guy who came from the rock and roll kind of thing, Uh, associate at all with any country acts? Do you know Charlie Daniels? Are are you aware of of B.J. Thomas? I mean, obviously, everybody's heard raindrops keep falling on my
1: head. Well, as regards Charlie Daniels, I mean, I was obviously aware that uh, if you want to put a tag on him, the tag I put on him is huge personality um, and a man of his own mind. um, And one small brush with him back uh, in the last millennia um, I was in my office and I got a phone call from Charlie Daniel's office and they were asking if uh, if I represented that that band that dubbed that Rock Me song and I said yes I do and I said well we'd sure like to have them come out and play it at the volunteer jam and I thought that that was such an extraordinary invitation and so broad-minded of of what I thought was a country country institution that I turned myself into a pretzel to be able to work out flying the band in to play. Uh, They played the set, and then they were back to the airport and zipping back across the country because we were in the middle of a tour. And we literally had a, a day that we could get out there and do it, and we did it. Um, but I thought I thought that was really cool. That just struck me as one of those things that you just say yes to.
0: Let me ask you about that. First of all, what we're we're talking about Great White obviously. Great White was on what tour? Was this with the Scorpions at that time?
1: No, 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 no. This would've been nineteen eighty seven. Um, At that time, we could have been with Night Ranger. We could have been with Twisted Sister. I can't remember exactly. I think we might have been with Night Ranger at that point because it was still summertime, um, obviously. And um, it was just, for me, utterly appealing because it was unexpected and spontaneous and genuine. And when you get something unexpected, spontaneous and genuine, put in front of you, you say, yes, you know, there's way too much calculation that goes into everything uh, above and beyond, but to go and play Charlie Daniels barbecue. Fuck yeah. We're in,
0: you know? Okay. So I, I just want to quickly ask you this. You mentioned twisted sister and and I have the perception and you're going to correct me probably that you're not a big fan of what twisted sister were doing because it was makeup and it was all sort of carnival but yet, when they play live, they're an incredible band live. Um, well, what, what what is your perception of, of Twisted Sister?
1: Well, my perception of Twisted Sister, I mean, you know, I was partial to a band in makeup. I mean, you know, I was a nipper when David Bowie first started to put a dress on, which I thought was interesting, and challenged the rigidity of my middle-class upbringing thinking. So that was, you know... I, I, Alice Cooper came along and I went, oh, this is interesting. Uh, there was this band from New York that came along and I looked at the cover of the record and went, wow, this looks really interesting, until I put the record on and found that they were inept and couldn't play very well, and that was a band called Kiss.
0: Um, I, I think you mean but, New York Dolls, New York Dolls.
1: Oh, who were even worse. Um, but, you know, not not averse to that at all. Um, with, with Twisted... Quite honestly, you know, it seems to me that it was sort of an East Coast Kmart version of wannabe Motley Crue. Um, but I'll tell you one thing, Twisted Sister had a singer that Motley Crew did not have. Um, Dee Snider is a phenomenal front man, an incredible power and pitch and a great tone in his voice and if i'd had my way and if i'd been involved with him in any way shape or form i'd have got him out of that ridiculous hideousness and i'd have just put him out there as what he is an absolutely amazing and powerful frontman who can who can own a room from the front of the stage
0: yep that 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 is d schneider in 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 a ball all wrapped up in a nice little package but just real quick uh you did say that they were sort of a, an East Coast knockoff of Motley Crue. They will debate saying that they started in 72, 73 and played the clubs in Jersey for 15 years before they they got anywhere. So maybe Motley Crue, well, I guess I guess Motley Crue wouldn't have heard of them, but anyway.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'll leave that to Jason Flom who I got to know when as a teenager. He called me up and he said, you know, tell me about Motley Crue. We've got a band out here in New York who's the New York version of Motley Crue. And I went, really now? Um, And Jason Fromm, if you do your research, is somebody who, as an A&R guy, signed some notable bands and then went on to uh, um, be a a high-powered executive in various record companies. So you can blame him for... Me calling them an East Coast Motley Crew because that's how they were introduced to me.
0: That's how he, they were sold. If, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, and J- and Jason he, Jason
1: he, had something to do with them being signed as well,
0: right? And, and he Skid. he was working with Atlantic, if I'm not mistaken, and eventually signed Skid Row. Yes.
1: Right? Yeah, uh, I think yeah, he signed yeah, Skid Row.
0: Uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm,
1: I'm I'm not sure if he signed Skid Row or not, but um, Jason had a, a very powerful. Uh, lawyer father and um, was actually somebody who had his ear close to the ground as opposed to worrying about which restaurant in Manhattan they were going to go and have lunch. So Jason was actually into the music. And uh, he, his first gold record was a band called Kicks. And uh, he Flew out to LA and um, asked me if I'd put Kicks on a bill with Great White and Tesla. And of course, you know, with Great White and Tesla, we need a third band, like we need a, uh, you know, an impacted wisdom tooth. It's you know, a lot more work, and we didn't need them to sell the tickets. Um, but Jason was someone I took a shine to when he was a teenager because he was bright and active. And there was a sense of the personal connection there. And I listened to the record and over lunch, I said, listen, you know, you've got to hit on this record. And they they were just about to give up uh, um, promoting Atlantic. They'd, I think they would put a couple of singles out and hadn't worked. And I said, you've got to hit on this record. And I'll tell you what I do, I'll do. I will take your band out if you commit to me to make a video for this particular song and get it to MTV, if you do that, I'll take your band out. And that was a song called Don't Close Your Eyes. And it turned out that that was a hit, and it got them a gold record.
0: Yes, and uh, some will say it is their second best song after Cold Blood. Cold Blood is a great song. What a great song. Yeah, it is. And they uh yeah it is they play... and I, the kick,
1: kick, kicks had a great little energy you know They were sort of they kind of reminded me of an Australian pub band in a way you know you, you could see them in the vomit and the blood and the beer and the sweat
0: well and, and the other thing is that they play the M three festival in Columbia Maryland every year they they do the opening Friday night because they're a local Maryland band so I've had a chance to see them uh, a bunch of times in the last few years at M three and they are great and, and they they work that that festival stage brilliantly i mean you you can see that had they had maybe more success in the late 80s early 90s they could have been on those stages with Mötley Crüe and Def Leppard year after year so for whatever happened I, I don't know but when they are on that stage that M3 stage they just dominate, and the fans love them. I mean, you know, it's, it's Friday night. They throw like three bands just to start the festival, and they headline it. They play, you know, at nine o'clock at night, and there's like twelve thousand people there watching it, cheering on the local band. And it's it's a great, great little thing. Yeah,
1: and and don't you just love it? We start out with B.J. Thomas, we end up with Kicks. How do we do that?
0: Well, because I, I get a kicks out of B.J. Thomas. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? But uh, let us get over to BJ Thomas. I know this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn, but I use the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame definition of rock and roll because uh, they do Notorious B.I.G. and Whitney Houston and all kinds of other stuff, and they call it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So on the Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn show, uh, you will once in a while get a Dennis Quaid, a Bananarama, a Culture Club, and today, the one and only... B.J. Thomas, as we say in Montreal, le bonjour, Monsieur B.J. How are you? Uh, thank you, thank you. Good day to you. I'm
2: doing well, and uh, and uh, enjoying talking to you today.
0: Yeah. So so let's talk about this rock for relief thing. Now, I got to hear uh, hear from it through uh, Adam Conti, who who runs uh, George Thurgood's affairs, and it was just a great, great event that took place at the beginning of July. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of the rock community or the music community to come together in these times of needs and just say, hey, you know what? We're a team. We're a family. We're in this together.
2: Well, yeah, you know, that's so true. We are we are a family. At least we feel that way. Uh, uh, you know, it's I think it's important for us, to especially, you know, we're we're kind of all, all the musicians are kind of quarantined and we're shut down and we're not really doing what we what we love to do because we we get a, I get a great feeling from what I get to do um, uh, and what I've uh, had to do all my life is I feel like I uplift people when I uh, when I perform for them. And so, you know, you know we've got we're kind of missing that feeling now because most of us are in quarantine and, uh, you know, very few of us are working. Or, um, you know, I had planned to go in the studio on Muscle Shoals uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, we had to postpone that, but I will do that one day. But, you know, it's very important for us to, to, to get together. Many uh, many uh, human beings uh, from Canada and America are, are suffering, um, finding it very difficult to put food on the table uh, for their children and their loved ones. And, uh, you know, it just felt good to be part of that. My, um, um, Rogers and Cowan is my PR uh, agency and they plugged me in and, and of course they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said, yeah, I, I, w- I want to do it. And, uh, it was a privilege to do it and, uh, just to add a little, you know, show a little compassion for that, for people who are struggling. And we of course, uh, feel that, uh, you know, deeply.
0: Yeah, and one thing that I've seen from fans on Facebook and Twitter is they go, oh, rock stars aren't suffering. They've they got millions of dollars lying at home, but explain to some of the fans here that when you're not touring, there's also the guy that made the T-shirt that's not making money. There's also the guy that's driving the bus that's not making money. There's also the lighting director, and, and you know, a B.J. Thomas concert or an Alice Cooper concert or a George Thurgood it's a small business that employs hundreds if not thousands of people down the line and when you're not touring it doesn't hurt you it hurts thousands right correct Yes I <clears throat> I agree with you said it exactly right I am very
2: stressed out and uh, worried about my band uh, I just uh, my heart aches for them and and of course you know we've got all the crews and all the people that you that you name they're involved in all these shows and that's not even counting the, the uh you know the local people who the our concert will benefit in some way uh the people who will attend the concert and be uplifted or um you know just have an epiphany about something not to make not to make it so uh, that my music so important but uh i do feel like that uh you know that people just suffer down the down the line just the people who are even just attending the concert and, and going to listen uh, to the songs that they know you by uh, over the years so it's a just as you said it's a it trem- has a tremendous effect um and of course people are, people seem to be uh, keeping their heads up and, and doing the best they can there are some people who are uh just totally wired in in a certain way that they politicize um this this virus and they they just don't get it that they should protect other people it's not about them uh you know having a freedom or, uh, you know that's so silly what we're doing here in our country and uh our main purpose should be worried about the people who are ill the people who are older uh now we're even worried about the younger people because they're the ones who uh have such a problem with the uh, following the rules uh, of safety for this thing. And so now they're involved and they're, they're, they're sick and, uh, and, uh, and still people won't get the, get the gist of this thing that it's, uh, you know, put the, put the mask on and protect yourself. But, uh, mainly what you're doing when you wear the mask is you're protecting other people. And, uh, we have a hard time right now. And I, in this era we're in, in the United States, uh, Getting that across to to many people, but uh, we've got to have compassion for people. This virus is no respecter of persons it's uh it's hurting everyone and uh, uh and our main objective of course, of which we stressed and we pushed with the a rock for relief was trying to trying to get some funds in there uh,
0: so that people uh, could just have food to eat and and be able to take care of their families, yeah. Oh, oh, totally. And I'll take you up on one thing you said. You said not that your music is so important. And I I will actually argue that point. And I will say that your music and all (laughs) musicians music. No, no, but it's important in the sense that, you know, when we when we break up with somebody, you have the breakup song. And when you fall in love with somebody, you have the fault, you know, when a, a, a a hockey team or a football team or whatever gets pumped up for a game, they've got a song. You know, you hear, for example, raindrops keep falling on my head. That just puts you in a good mood, and so something that's mood-altering, life-changing, life-affirming, whether it's your song, or Alice Cooper, or George Thorogood or Dolly Parton, uh, to me, that's important, right? I mean, songs, music is important.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Music is a vital uh, part of this life, uh, because uh, no matter what's happening, uh, being in the midst of all this stuff, for example, you still... uh, as a as a person as an individual depend on feelings and uh music is so important to uh you know to, to uplift people and how they feel you know you might be depressed with this thing and you can hear a song a favorite song you have by somebody and it can take you out of the doldrums and uh and and get you get you on your feet for that day and uh, you're right it's music is very important and uh um I owe a lot to, uh, you know, Montreal and to Canada. They've been the, 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 some of the biggest supporters of my music around this world. And uh, and uh, they've they've, made, they've given me a lot of success. I certainly appreciate it.
0: Yeah. And I think uh, when you look at all the, the streaming concerts that are going on right now or streaming performances or lockdown videos, I think just that tells you how important it is because people are just tuning in and tuning in and tuning in. Um, just real quick. Since we uh, we mentioned, or I mentioned, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, what what strikes me about that song, and I know you've done a million interviews talking about that song, was the process. The story is that you went in and you did five or six takes, and the guy said, nah, do another take, and then you finally got it. Um, in this day... No. no? That's not the story? <laughs> okay. No,
2: well, I'll tell you what happened. I, I, of course, uh, Raindrops ran during the bicycle scene in the Butch Cassidy... And the Sundance Kid, and and uh, when I got to, I flew out to California to do it, and I had been working a stream of, of one nighters through the Midwest, and I, and and you know by the time I got to California, I had an acute case of uh, laryngitis, and I could hardly, I could hardly talk. Of course, back in those days, and uh, you know I, I was a smoker, and you know what have you, and uh, man, I barely got through about oh, it, it might have been five takes, but it was probably was more like four uh There at, that when we cut it for the for the scene, and I had rehearsed with Mr. Bacharach the day before, and he really liked the way I sounded. I was I was really kind of hoarse and gravelly, and I think that's what he wanted. He he realized that hey this this sounds authentic, so that the uh, the soundtrack came out fine. And then a few weeks later, about six weeks later, we re-recorded uh, Raindrops for the single version that was the number one record and everything and we only did it 3 times and uh, the third time uh I did the me on the end it was kind of a kind of a, a part of my my style because when I was doing when you do Burt Bacharach music you have to sing it the way he's written it because he was the you know maybe maybe one of the greatest composers of all time I mean not maybe he is one of the greatest composers of all time so I had been doing it note for note, and we just did three takes at uh, Columbia Studios. There we had musicians, and on the third take, I did the you know me thing, and uh, he loved it. And so it, uh, you know, it wasn't a bunch of takes. Nobody was belaboring it. It just uh, it was it was written so well and had so many great musicians in there that it was it was almost good from the first take. And I think he pl- he spliced. The three takes we did at Columbia Studios there in the in New York together. So the the actual single is three different takes of Raindrops. So.
0: Yeah, that see. That's, that's a great story. But uh, what I was also going to try to get to is is the fact that in this day and age of Pro Tools, and you sing you know one syllable and then you just fly it in and cut and cut and paste it and all. Have <laughs> we, right. I mean that's what we do now. H- have we sort of lost the the soul or maybe even the spirit? of what making music is because you look at raindrops you look at how popular yeah. it was and like you said it was three takes now you do yeah. one take and you just hit repeat so have we lost the spirit well you know i'm i'm not uh, you know i'm not gonna
2: i'm not in a in a situation where i feel like i need to criticize uh, uh music but i do think that the software approach uh, that away from the live live thing is uh takes away from the soul of the music you know the music now is in perfect meter uh you know, you know if you go back and listen to your favorite song from the you know sixties seventies eighties whatever uh you listen to them you know none of them in perfect meter the entire song and that's that's one of the things that uh, that that made you like it even you know you don't even know it's uh, it's changing meter because with raindrops. The 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 last verse, the third uh, splice, which was the uh, the the, the p- little part of the bridge, and the last verse was almost twice as fast as the first verse was. So uh, I, I do think that it takes, as you say, I think it takes away from the soul of the music. But I, I understand right now that people, are, that it's kind of going back to studio groups. You know, there's some music you you don't need a live. Guy, yeah, you just need a drum, a drum track, and a. Uh, you can do it on keyboards, and it's uh, you know a lot of the music nowadays that's very popular and and is really good. Um, you don't really need live musicians if that's you know if you're doing it in your bedroom or do, you know like whatever, you know the music is coming from everywhere now because we've got the technology to do it. But I do think that when you have a live band, and you start from scratch. Learning the song, singing the song, and recording the song until you get the right take. I just think that is a is the best way to create soulful, emotional music.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I fully agree. And and like you said, if you listen to any of those albums from the '60s, the '70s, the '80s, whoever it is, whether it's Elvis or the or the Beatles or Black <clears> Sabbath, <throat> the drumming sometimes is out of time. Sometimes you hear the, the, yeah. the finger movements on the guitar, but those imperfections are what gave them texture, what gave them something. You just go, oh, yeah, you know. Um,
2: exactly.
0: That's exactly so. And I mean,
2: we had a guy, I remember I recorded in Memphis, you know, at American Studio, and they always cut all his comeback stuff at American Studio. But the one guy, Tommy Cogbill, says, hey, you know, if when you get to the last verse, if you're not going faster than the first verse, you're not doing it right. <laughs> so." It was just uh it was just a natural way to do it, you know. It, uh, and it was a beautiful way to do it. It was a lot of fun, you know. You didn't, um, you know, you didn't have an auto tune, and you know, if you hit a bad note, you either did, redid the performance or you or you stuck with it. You know, there are a lot of imperfect vocals in that great music from those generations uh, uh, that that really you end up you end up loving that little peculiar note in the song so you know it's all good and it, and the thing about it it was so much more um fun i, I have actually done a, con, an, a complete album with software uh uh and uh you know the songs were good uh the vocals were good uh you know everything was good but you know it just it it, it just did not have that uh that That feel that, that warmth with, it, with that live band, you know it yeah. just did not have that emotion and that soul,
0: yeah, yeah, it sounds sort of antiseptic, but um this, let me ask yeah. you this, how important is it for you at this stage to create new music to to stay creative and and come up with ten new songs? you know you look at the living room sessions and you you reimagine some of the older ones, which uh, displays a creativity to to think of new arrangements and know the. You look at Oh Holy Night and you you put your take on some of those classics. Um, But how important is it to come up with 10 new songs that nobody's ever heard? Do you even need to bother at this point? I mean, you can go out and say BJ Thomas (laughs) is in, you know, Branson, Missouri tonight and the folks will come out. Um, What's your take on on still creating?
2: I get get, get your point because, uh, you know, it's been a long time uh, since, uh, you know, uh, let's let's be honest it it's been a while since i was a relevant um uh, artist uh, you know and that's okay because you know music is all about what's new and you know hey i'm 78 years old now man, i i i i i am i'm not uh, i'm not really re- trying to be competitive with the popular uh uh singers and musicians of today i'm just still interested in doing uh what what i do even though it may just end up online and uh, of course it's not going to get any airplay and uh you know that you know that so it i'm not i'm not trying to be a um let's say a a make a comeback or be a relevant uh artist again but uh uh, when you, when you're in this business and probably all businesses, I, I don't want to make that a general sense, but when you're in, in, when you're in music, that virtually the only way you can continue to be creative and perform and travel and do the things it takes to be, uh, be comp- uh, competitive, at least, uh, or to participate in this business is you must have a, uh, uh, you know, like an inner fire, uh, uh, to do it. And, uh, if you just, if you're just sitting around, uh, you become, you know, you, you don't have any, really any peace of mind unless most of the time you're trying to create something and, uh, and do something that, that follows that same feeling that, you know, that I had when I was 20, I still have that burning desire within me. So, uh, uh, to feed that and and uh, to feed my, my peace of mind, I need to be creative. And I know it might you know it might not really mean as much as it did, but uh, I'm going uh, as I mentioned, I'm going into muscle shows uh, with Dan Penn and Billy Lawson. And uh, as soon as we get this vaccine, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do another project. And uh, you know I've got some really good songs, and I'm gonna really love and enjoy doing it. I'm gonna make it available for the people and i'm doing it you know uh, for for myself because i i need to do it so i can sleep at night you know you know what i'm saying
0: yeah absolutely and and by the way i think that's got to be a, a a great moment in your career when you can start making music for yourself and not worry about the a the aor guy or the record company guy or the radio station guy and just go hey you know what this this song's for me and that's got to be a great place to yeah, be yeah you know i
2: i came, I came from a generation uh, the, I, I never gave a, one thought to the, to the, uh, about, about radio or, or anything like that until I had, you know, I had my first hit record and I'm Oh wow. You know, because I, I always wanted to make a hit record. I had, a, I was in a band, the triumphs, a little band in Texas, and, uh, we dreamed of having a hit record, but, you know, we really knew we were never going to have a hit record. I mean, you know, and so then all of a sudden, bang, you know, we had this hit record and, and then, uh, um, but I never gave one thought to 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 radio back in those days. Uh, I was just doing it because I ha- I had to do it in a way, and it and it was so much fun. But I I had to do it in in, in a way uh, for myself at all times. So then when I was with a great radio uh, uh, record company, Scepter Records, out of New York City, and they had great people, they could get airplay. I never even worried about. About that, that if I, I knew that if I made a song and it had something that these guys would uh, would get it on radio eventually, and that's a funny thing, you know, because radio really resisted. Raindrops keep falling in my head. They wouldn't play it. Uh, WABC in New York City. They wouldn't play it. They said, "No, BJ is singing a wrong note in the in the first verse and things like that." that you know, so. It it got terrible reviews from the movie, but, you know, it was a great song because there was just something very true about, you know, the raindrops fall on everyone, but if you're free, you're okay. You know, nothing's worrying you. So uh, there was something about it and it it made it through. So I always felt like if I cut a good song, it was going to make it through. Now that's changed a little bit nowadays and that pop music that, uh, that I made it's not even you know that we all used to make back in back in then they used to call pop it's not even there anymore, so uh you know things things always uh, things things change you know well
0: i'll listen, I'll tell you why it's a great song because we're in twenty twenty fifty years later talking about it, and all those people that said that to you fifty years ago, we have no idea who what their names are, we completely forgot them. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, since that's we, true, that, well, it, it, well, that's hot that's the only way to look at it. 50 years later, I'm talking to you about raindrops. I'm not talking to you about Bert or John or whoever wrote it. <laughs> um, uh, real quick, uh, cause I know we're out of time. We had 20 minutes. Uh, Charlie Daniels of course passed away recently. He was a oh, friend of yours. Yeah. Um, can we just take a moment to remember him?
2: Oh yeah. You know, the, uh, that guy had a lot of respect from everyone in the, in in the business whether they were country uh or not he was respected across the board i only the last time i was with uh charlie was uh uh, way back um you know probably 25 30 years ago uh and of course i'm always aware of what he's doing and and the great uh, music that he made but we were we were not close personal friends but uh, you know all of us in this business we feel like we there is a friendship there whether we see or really seeing each other on a regular basis or not and he he just was uh, one of the most admired guys uh he had a certain uh, perspective on uh and on what he thought and he wasn't afraid to express uh, how he felt about america and about music and about people and uh that was one of the things you just had to you had to respect about him and he will really really be missed because uh he occupied a uh significant uh point of view and sound within country music and he, he he won't be replaced
0: no no absolutely not and uh and on that mr thomas uh, where we we've reached our 20 minutes so thank you so much it, it, it was an absolute pleasure i could go on for another two hours but uh thank you so much for taking the time today
2: well, Mitch, I, I appreciate that, man. You just call me BJ, please. And then, hey, if we get time, let's let's do the two hour thing. You just let me know.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And as we say in Montreal, merci. and I want to
2: I want to thank your listeners out there, uh, and, and thank you and your listeners for remembering me and keeping me around all this time. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Cheers. Bye bye now. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch Lafon and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.